Be reading verses 1 through 12. Acts 21 through 12, beginning in verse number 1. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, he was about to sail into Syria. He purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius, and Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, and had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive, and were not a little comforted. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we now come to this time in the service where we open up your word, we give you thanks that you have given to us this special revelation. Because without it, we would not know how to worship you rightly. We would not know how we could be saved. We would not know the glorious gospel. And we would not know your commandments and how you would have us to live. Your word tells us that it is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. Because of our sinfulness, we are prone to error. And with a desire to uh, follow the darkness and to live in the darkness. So we need the light of your word. And we pray that you would work in us today by the Holy Spirit's power to shine that light in our hearts. And to put in us the grace to know the truth, to believe the truth, and then to live the truth. So we ask your blessing on this time as we hear the preaching and teaching of your word. And we give you thanksgiving, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Man, just so thankful this morning for the for the songs amen just uh how they they really really set the the stage and the in the tone for the preaching and just how god centered they are amen and that is really so important especially when you think that song he will hold me fast and uh, all of us i think this morning can understand how frail we are we know our lives we know that uh, we couldn't 
we couldn't cleave on to Christ and hold on to him in any of our own might or power. And so it's such a glorious thing. And even this morning as we get into our text this morning, again, we see, again, Paul's reliance, uh, the church's utter and complete dependence upon the power of God. And uh, we, again, see this even in our text this morning. The title of our message is on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. And so we're going to delve into our text this morning. But before we do that, I just by way of reminder, you know, concerning where we've been, because again, when you go verse by verse, it's good to just remember uh, where we've been. And we have been blessed and by the providence of God for sure over the last several, well, weeks and, and months, brothers and sisters, we have indeed been tutored by the sacred scriptures concerning the spirit of God's mighty works and the missionary travels of Paul. And again, it's always the focal, that is always the focal point of it all, in which our religious affections are drawn again and again to the glorious truth, brethren, that we're not just traveling or following a man's travels. This is so important. I, I, I pray to the Lord God that he'll sink this deep down into our hearts, that we're not just simply here uh, out of some kind of exercise, but we're, we're literally seeing, brethren, as the Spirit of God works through Paul and through the preaching and all that's taking place, we're literally watching as the gospel of Christ marches effectually across the continents. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And even this morning, it is still to this day the words we read affecting us as we gather together here this morning, as we gather around the Lord's table, as we gather around to hear God's word preached, as we gather around to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. To this day, this text and the text of the book of Acts and is being such an influential thing, if you will, on our church and we pray, don't we, that it'll be a very effectual and powerful thing in other fellowships as well. Again, we are seeing God's plan unfolding across. And this morning, the Holy Ghost is set before us once again in our text here in chapter 20, his ongoing inspired geography lesson. Because again, this is really part of what we've been seeing in the text as we, as we see this. And so Luke, by way of his inspired pen and you have to say that now I say it all the time you guys probably you know he says it all the time well that's because you have to say it all the time amen because even the inspiration of scripture has been under attack and continues to be and so you hear me say it all the time led by his inspired pen in other words as God the spirit of God is carrying Luke along he wrote for us and did a glorious service to us by once again giving us this most interesting uh outline that we see this morning in verses one through six really what we're going to see in our text is Paul's trip from Ephesus to Troas look at verses five and six there of our text look verses five and six look what the Bible says there these uh, going before tarried for us at Troas and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them in Troas in five days and we abode there seven days so again the first six verses Luke under the inspiration of God's going to give us a snapshot of Paul's travels literally from Ephesus to Troas. Verses 7 through 12, we see here Paul's ministry work that is taking place while he's in Troas. And so we're going to kind of delve into that deeply a little bit here this morning. And then finally this morning, as we look together, in verses 13 through 17, his trip from Troas to Miletus. And so he's doing some traveling around here as the gospel's spreading. And then finally, 18 through 38, which we won't get in this morning, brothers, but 
just his ministry to the Ephesian elders. And again, as we get to that part, it's going to be such a comforting thing to the church as Paul is once again revealed as his pastoral love for the churches. It was interesting, as I was telling Brother Howard earlier, that um, as I was studying this out, you know, you read commentaries. There's, you know, if you, you know, there's nothing wrong with reading commentaries to see what men of old believed. And I was quite stunned that there was, a, there was one in particular that we would all certainly hold in high esteem. And one of the things he said, he read this text for hours and hours, and he just didn't know what he was going to preach about because there's really no theology in it. There's not, and I'm thinking, look, I'm a... I'm a, I'm a mite compared to this man. And, and, and there's theology proper all through our text, brethren. It's what drives us. It's what keeps us, if you will, straight is our good, sound, biblical theology. Now, there's many things that come out in our text, but one of them we're going to see here for sure is some good theology this morning. Look there, if you would, at verses 1 and 2 of our text this morning. Listen to the inerrant, infallible words of God this morning, verses 1 and 2. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called on to him the disciples and embraced them. That's an important uh, word there that he uses, and departed to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts, he had given them much exhortation. Again, this is revealing the heart of Paul, his love for the church, which no question is over and over again through the book of Acts, but here it comes out, uh, but much, much exhortation. He came into Greece, uh, or Corinth, and so this is the idea here. When that Bible uses the word Greece here, he's there, but he's literally in the city of Corinth as he's traveling towards Jerusalem. And so Luke tells us, as we looked last week, at that, that the no small stir, remember we looked at that, uh, caused, if you will, by Demetrius, this confused, disorderly tumult and uproar has come to an end. The Lord brought it to a proper end at the end of chapter 19. And Paul then meets with his disciples. He calls them and embraces them before he leaves for Macedonia. And as we remember, he had purposed, again, brother, and we always have to keep in mind as he's traveling. I wish I had a big map. We should get a big map up here so you can see just exactly this great inspired geography lesson that we're seeing as, it's, as the gospel is effectually moving across the continent. But we, we see here again that Paul had purposed, again, that to go through Macedonia and Greece, again, Corinth, and when, then to Jerusalem and from there to Rome. And that's ultimately where he's heading. By the way, Paul was in Rome and Peter, we don't think, was ever there. Peter never the, was never the Pope of Rome. Never, ever do we ever see anywhere, where, even in history itself, that Peter was ever there. Paul, this is where he's going. This is where he's heading, ultimately. But again, in verses 1 and 2, we see Paul's Christ-like love and affection for brethren, for the brethren in the churches there. In fact, if we jump ahead just a little bit as he's finishing up with the Ephesian elders, he says something, verse 31, again, just to see again this great love that we've seen unfold all along. Paul's great concern for the churches. And brethren, keep this in mind, amen. Paul doesn't care about the building. He's not caring about this building right here. And brethren, this morning, the elders and brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be concerned about it either. What we should be concerned about is who's in the building. The church, those who are seated here this morning, the saved of God, those who may be the lost sheep of God, those who are who Paul was always concerned about. And we see it here. Look at verse 31. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so again we see Paul's great love and concern for the people within the church. He embraced the saints, our text tells us in verse number one. He gave the saints in Macedonia much exhortation in verse two. And then he does indeed arrive in Greece 
in Corinth. And as he's there, we again see this love that Paul has for them. Look with me, if you would, for just a moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, many of us are very familiar with the church at Corinth. Many of us are very familiar with the issues in the church of Corinth. We know that there were believers within the church. Brethren, there was all manner of trouble in the church in Corinth. And even Paul, even with all of the trouble, all of the things that were taking place, keeping in mind that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in our text here. He wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth for three months. That's what God was doing. He was using, well, Paul didn't write it. He dictated it to Tertius, who wrote it, but it was by the inspiration of God. So this is what's taking place. Luke really gives us a snapshot of what's taking place. And if you want a deeper dive into where we're at in our text, the book of Romans and the book of 2 Corinthians reveals many things that are taking place, even here in our text, as Luke kind of just dives over the top of it quickly. But look there. Look at the love that Paul, again, as we've seen over and over again. And this is really a practice that every pastor, every elder should have for those whom God has put over or put under them within the church itself, within the congregation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse number 11. Paul says, even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor and working with our own hands. Uh, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and of the off-scourging of all things unto this day. Now, brethren, look what he says. I write not these things to shame you, but as beloved. And brethren, every time we see that word in Scripture, we know what he's talking about Christians. So again, Paul's concerned. Look at all the stuff that's taking place. Brothers are taking brothers to court. They're suing each other, and all of these things are taking place. And Paul calls, says, listen, beloved, this is why I'm writing this. Look at here. He says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. So again, Paul's concern, his love for the church, even as he arrives there in Corinth, Paul was not only loving the church and willing to, he expended his life for the church, which is really quite an amazing thing when you consider that. Look what he told the church at Philippi as we're getting here. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Again, just Paul's great love, this God-given, enduring love for those in the church as we should have the same. Look at Philippians just for a moment here. Look what he tells the church there. Look at verse Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 17 and 18. Look what Paul says concerning this. Look at verses 17. Yea, and if I be offered up upon the sacrifice of service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. So Paul himself even says, hey, I, my life is being sacrificed, being offered up as a sacrifice for the church. This is the kind of love that Paul had, this God-endearing, the Holy Ghost-led kind of love there. In fact, in his last words, in his last words that are ever recorded, at least inspired words, in 2 Timothy, look there if you would, in chapter 4, just quickly again, as, he, as his life is being expended for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the love of the church, all starting on the road to Damascus when God called him and saved him there. And from that day forward, brethren, all we see is Paul expending his life for the Lord Jesus Christ as the Spirit of God guides him and directs him. It's a stunning thing and showing his love again for that which what, brethren? That which Christ died for. Amen. 
that which the Lord Jesus Christ died for. Paul loved was that kind of Christ-like love, these brethren. And believe you me, it's interesting, isn't it, when we consider Paul, we consider what Paul was doing, understanding that he knew the people that were in these churches. I was just telling Wendy, one of the things that I've noticed about the churches today that's different than what we're reading here is that many times, brethren, when we get up close to one another, when we get to know one another, when we get to see the wrinkles and all of those things that all of us have, do you know what happens today? Instead of loving and doing what Paul is doing, many times people just abscond. <laughs> they, just, they, just, they just leave instead of staying, instead of loving one another and caring for one another. Because, brethren, the next fellowship you go to, there's going to be all kinds of warts there too. There's going to be people you may not get along with that well. You may not like all that much and... You may not like me that much, but here's the thing, brethren. If we're going to live out the Christ-like example, the Pauline examples that we see all throughout the book of Acts, we must learn, brethren, to forgive one another, to bear with one another, to bear our burdens together, brethren. This is what a healthy church does. This is what it looks like. In fact, Paul, again, his great love here, for the church. Look at verse 5. Last, almost, very last, inspired words written concerning Paul. He says this. He tells young Timothy, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of that ministry, for I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. Again, Paul, all from his life, from the time the Lord saved him, all the way up to his last dying breaths before his execution. He was consumed by his God-given love and endearment for the saints. And again, it's the same thing here. We see Paul's great concern as he arrives here in Corinth, as he writes the second epistle to Corinth, as he indeed writes the book of Romans. We see again his glorious, God-given, I mean healthy, God-given love for the brethren, even though there are many warts and and many, many things that were taking place there. Now look back there at Acts chapter 20. Look at verse number 3. Again, Luke, is, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, he writes this in verse number 3 for us. Again, And there abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. Well, again, as I said earlier, the, the Lord has Luke record here that that Paul is there in Greece. He's there in Corinth for three months. So we see the extended period at least this time of where he's at and how long he stayed there. And again, as I said, this is where he dictated to Tertius, the book of Romans and 2 Corinthians. Again, if you want to fill in the blanks that we see here in our text, that's where we find what was taking place, the different things that took place there. While he was there, though, the Bible tells us here that the Jews were laying in wait for him. And again, brethren, as we have seen over and over again, it's the same pattern, amen? As he's getting ready to sail and getting ready to leave again for Antioch, Syria, his home church, he's heading in that direction to visit. The Holy Ghost unveils this unholy plot that is plotted against Paul himself. They had and have had all along, as we've said, intentions to kill Paul. We've seen it over and over again through the book as God is protecting him, as he's, again, using him to spread the gospel across the world. They were literally brethren. It's a stunning thing to consider this when this plot that 
Luke records here and tells us about. It would have been very easy to kill Paul, if you understand in our text even after the unleavened bread. They were getting ready. The ships were loading up. They were getting ready to sail over to Jerusalem. There would have been many pilgrims on this ship that Paul was going to get on. And it's an amazing thing. Many historians, and, 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 I, and I trust men, right? Some men that are, that are wise in wisdom. and they, they literally believe, and I believe it, that what they were planning on doing was, as Paul gets on the ship to sail, that they were going to somehow toss Paul over the side of the ship along the way, which could have been done very easily. And so you see here again, so what does the Holy Spirit do? He reveals, protects Paul and says, hey, don't get on the ship. The Bible says what? Then he decides to take foot. He goes through Macedonia instead. Again, we see the providential hand of God protecting his preacher as he goes along spreading the gospel. So you think of this, brethren, again, that Satan and his minions, as we have seen over and over again, they, they know no bounds, brethren. This is the thing you must learn. They know no bounds. They will stop at, not stop at anything. And those whom Satan uses, amen, to go after, if you will, to kill the man of God there as we see that. But again, as they're planning and plotting, this isn't the first time. We remember in Acts chapter 9 where uh, it was revealed that Paul, they were going to kill Paul. They laid in wait for him there in chapter 9. And do you remember what they did? They let Paul down in what? In a basket. They escaped through there. But I want you to see, this is not the last attempt that they have on his life. They are, they are hell-bent, brethren, on getting rid of this preaching, of this gospel, of Paul, of what's taking place. As they Again, as they look and see all of the fruit of God, as the gospel is preached, what does it say? And many believed in his name. And we just saw in Acts chapter 19, the repentance that took place. They bring their curious arts. God saves them. And these Jewish, unbelieving Jews will have none of it. It, it is a stunning thing. And I've said this before. But this is what religion will do to you. This is what religiosity does. It makes you pompous. It makes you unholy. All of those things. I remember a long time ago, uh, Bev will remember this, and some of those who have been around a while, Pastor Steve Dunn when he was here. We, we, went, we were invited to a house. We were invited by this lady who was intending our fellowship we go over there and we start presenting the gospel. Now, brethren, this is the gospel, pure and as pure as it can get. And you know what the lady does? She gets up and kicks us out of the house. She literally took us and booted us out of the house because we were sharing the gospel. See, she was religious, but had no time for the gospel, for the truth of the saving gospel. It's a stunning thing. This is what we are seeing over and over again. These unbelieving Jews are religious. They have no want, no need, no desire for the true gospel that saves. And so they are indeed plotting all along the way. Look at Acts chapter 23 again, just ahead a little bit. This is not the last time in our text this morning that they plotted to kill Paul. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture to us. But I want to read again and hear the word of God as it sinks deep down into our ears to help us understand again that they will stop at nothing. They will pull out all the stops to fight against the gospel of Christ. Look there at verse 11, Acts chapter 23. Look at verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be, be of good cheer. 
Hey, Paul, be of good cheer. I know many are trying to assassinate you. They're trying to kill you. But be of good cheer, uh, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And when it was day, a certain Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Again, here it is again. They are fighting against God. They are fighting against the gospel of Christ. And it's interesting there, verse 13, and they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have found ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that uh, he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or, or, uh, and we, or ever he can't come near, are ready to kill him. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their laying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Again, so what do we have here? We have God himself exposing. In fact, I, I like the words I wrote down here. Man supposes, but it is God who disposes. Amen. And again, we see the hand of God in Paul's life even here. Here's the nephew comes on in and says, hey, there's this plot. They're going to kill you, Paul. And God again protecting his preacher. It is quite an amazing thing when you consider all of these miracles, all of these things that are taking place right before our very eyes. Now look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 20. Again, Luke here is skipping over. I mean, and I don't mean skipping over. He's just simply giving us a Reader's Digest condensed version of what's happening. But he mentions some men. He mentions some people here. And it's important as we look at this text together. Look at verse number 4. And there accompanied him to Asia, Sopater of Berea, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus of Asia, Tychicus, and Trimophius. These, going before, tarried for us at Troas. Well, again, as the Bible always is, Luke didn't just put this here to fill space. He didn't just put it there so we'd have something to read or something to look at. But here in verses 4 and 5, the Holy Ghost leads Luke to record the names of the men who represent all the different churches that are helping, if you remember, with the collection for the church in Jerusalem. They are traveling with Paul. Amen? Amen. So the names are not here for no reason. God has mentioned them because these churches, you remember what they're all fighting against. They're, they're taking up a collection Paul's heading to Jerusalem to give that to the church in Jerusalem. What is the church in Jerusalem mainly made out of? For the most part, and they're still fighting it, it's mainly made out of Jews. If you look at these men here, these are Gentiles. These are Gentiles who are helping Paul as they go along and take this collection. And God always has a purpose for what he's doing. What is the purpose? Why are these men, these Gentile men from all of these different churches who are taking up the collection, why are they traveling with Paul to Jerusalem? Well, to show that they as Gentiles, amen, want to help and love the Jewish church in Jerusalem. That's one of the things. They're trying, we're bringing unity, we're trying to bring this thing together. This is part of it right here, part of God's glorious plan to break down those walls that they're fighting and still dealing with. So they bring goodwill and unity between the Gentile churches and the heavenly weighted, heavenly weighted Jewish church. In Jerusalem. In fact, it's interesting even in the names. Aristarchus. Well, 
What does his name mean? Where does that name come from? It came, comes from aristocracy, which means what? The ruling class, wealthy. Aristarchus here was a wealthy man. And so we see this, right? The top, if you will, of the, of the class. He's at the top of the class. But then he gives us also what? What's the other name that we, that we see there? Secundus. Secundus, of course, <laughs> that name means something as well. It's literally the name for slave. It means to be second. So we've got Aristarchus, who is the top of the food chain, if you will. We have Secundus, who is down here, who is a slave. And they're what? They are together. They are rolling along as God is using them to pr promote the gospel and to bring this, if you will, this collection to Jerusalem. And so even in that, we see God, well, <clears throat> all he's doing is implementing the teaching of James, even though James isn't, isn't written yet, amen, which is what? Don't show the rich favoritism, and don't show the poor favoritism. They are together. We are together, amen, and that's what we're seeing here again, this unity that is being brought forth through the men who are taking this collection with Paul up to Jerusalem. It is truly a beautiful thing as we see that unfold. Now, as I said earlier, one of the men who I hold in high esteem and still do hold in high esteem, when he said he was reading this text, there's no theology, there's no this, there's no that in there. And it's like, wait a minute, what about verses 6 and 7? Look there at verses 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 20 with me, if you would. Brother, there's all kinds of theology, and as you know, my brain works that way. That, that's how I'm geared. I'm geared in theology. That's just the way it is. And so there's a love for, you know, that I have to work on in my own life concerning this. But look there, if you would, at verses 6 and 7. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So Paul was in Philippi there uh, over the Passover, and he came on to them in Troas in five days. And we abode seven days. We were reading the text last night in our home, and What's abode? So we had to define Eutychus. We had to define abode. There was all kinds of neat things we had conversations about last night, right? Right, guys? It was interesting. But look at verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, brethren, that's theology. I don't know if that sticks out to you like it does to me, but that certainly is. Not only does he mention the first day of the week, but look what else he says here in our text in verse 7. When the disciples came together... Well, the first day of the week when the disciples came together, brethren, what day is it today? It's the first day of the week. And what are we doing, brethren? We are what? Gathering together. Now, Paul lays out here, why are we gathering together? Look what he says there in the, in the verse. First of all, uh, well, second of all, they come together to break bread. Brethren, what are we going to do here in just a little while? We're going to break bread. I mean, there's, brethren, there is polity, there is theology, there is practice. And that's what this is about, really. The theology, the good theology should lead us to our what? To our practice. How they did it, we should do it. And look at the third thing there. Not only that, not only did they gather on the first day of the week, not only did they gather to break bread, but look what else they gathered for. Look at verse, as we continue the verse, Paul preached unto them. <laughs> Paul preached unto them. The Bible says, ready to depart on the morrow and continue his speech until midnight. Really what the Lord is doing here, brethren, again, well, number one is showing his ownership of the church. That's first of all. This is something that's been lost in the West. Christ owns the church. 
God owns the church. If you're a Christian this morning, he owns you. Remember that verse? We could quote it together. You were bought with a what? A price. You are not your own. You are owned by God this morning, by the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian. And we see this here, brethren, as the Lord graciously gives us a peek into the early church and what they did on Sundays. That's right, Sundays. By drawing our attention to a particular Sunday in Troas. Paul's in Troas here. He's gathering together this little church, brethren, that we know hardly anything about. It's a stunning thing when you look up the history of Troas, the church. There's very little known, but this is known of them. This is what they are known for. And that is practicing good and proper theology. And polity within the fellowship, which is a great thing. It's an amazing thing. God uses this little church in Troas to engrave holy practices, brethren, that have continued for nearly 2,000 years. And you know what, brethren? It will continue. These holy practices will continue until he what? Until he comes again. It is amazing to me how light people take the local church. And I harp on this all the time because this is what happens. We forget who we're owned by. We are owned by Christ, number one. The church is owned by Him, by God. In fact, we're going to look at that. He's engraving these holy practices that have, for nearly 2,000 years, been lived out in the local churches. Now, they met on the first day of the week. Why? they meet on the first day of the week. I think it's interesting, isn't it, brethren, that so often people think we just meet here because we meet here, when in reality, what is the event, brethren, can I ask you this morning? I wish it was Wednesday. I would ask you, and you could respond back. What is the event that sparked the meeting of the church on the first day of the week? Anybody remember what it was? Yes, it was indeed, and let me say this, brethren, because you've got to say it, it was indeed the physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. On the first day, very early in the morning, turn with me if you would here, the, the church isn't practicing this holy practice because it's something that I or Howard or Dean or some elder came up with. We're doing it because we are owned by who? By God. We are his possession. Look here, if you would, Mark chapter 16, the close of that glorious gospel. Who, by the way, I might add, if you remember when I preached through this, there are many who won't even turn here anymore. It's a stunning thing. They do away with the quote-unquote long ending of Mark. It's, it's despicable, but men do do that. Mark chapter 16, look at verse number 2. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into, unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Look at verse 9. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. So it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that was uh, done by God on the first day of the week. That's why we meet on the first day of the week, because we are owned by he who died and was buried and rose again from the dead. That's why we meet. That's why we practice on the first day of the week. 
Not only that, look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Brethren, in the English language, and here in the, in the Greek as well, it is borne out in the Greek. But here we have our English Bibles in our hands, and for not only do we have a geography lesson going this morning, but we also have an English lesson, a punctuation lesson going this morning. When you take a, an apostrophe Y, what does that denote, brethren? It denotes what? Ownership. This is what it does in the English language, and yes, here even in the Greek, but I want you to see again why we're here. It isn't because I made it up or we made it up or we think it's a better idea than meeting on Tuesday. Look at here what the Bible calls it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Look there what the Bible says. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of, Je of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the what? On the Lord's day. Notice the apostrophe. Amen. This is a day, brother. Listen. This is a day that is owned by God. It's called the Lord's day because he is the primary owner of the day that we gather together. Again, the holy practice that we're seeing here in the book of Acts. It's a holy practice that has gone on and will continue to go on. It is indeed the Lord's day. Second of all, Luke tells us in our text that they, they gathered to what? On the Lord's day to break bread. All right, brethren, again, as we quiz one another this morning, as we ask these questions, what is this called? I mean, can I ask the question, what is this, brother? It is the breaking of bread, but the Bible calls it something specific. Two things, actually. Let us see that together. And I want you to see the ownership. It is his, he who owns it. He owns you, he owns the day, he owns this table. Look with me, if you would, in your Bibles just quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, familiar portions of Scripture to us. These holy practices were put in place by God himself. The church at Troas is simply being obedient to these holy practices. Look at the church at Corinth. Again, as we remember, Paul's in Corinth, and uh, he wrote this obviously this letter to Corinth. But look what he says concerning this. Look at uh, chapter 10. Look at verse number 21. Ye cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table. Do you see that there? See that nice apostrophe there? That denotes ownership. It's the Lord's table, brethren. We have not been given the right anywhere in Scripture to change anything, to change it at all. Just because I feel like it, because I've got a whim, because I feel like it, brethren, you cannot do that if you are a child of God. It is the Lord's table, apostrophe, ownership. This is why we're here. So we're owned by him. The day is owned by him. Look at here. The, the table is owned by God. It, see, brethren, that should really spark a different outlook concerning who God is and why we're here. That should spark in us as believers the importance of why we're here and why we do what we do. We don't gather this morning, brother, and we're not going to gather together again just as some kind of flippity-flip little old exercise in church. It's actually we're gathering around the Lord Jesus Christ who owns what we're doing. This is what the little church in Troas 
is teaching us. Imagine, very, we know very little about it, and yet this is what we see, these great holy practices. Well, look at one more since we're in 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 11. Again, we've read it a hundred times. We gather on the Lord's... Well, look at here. Look what here what the Bible calls it. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and 21. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. There it is again. See that apostrophe? Ownership. He owns. The idea here is they were gathering together for their love feast in an unholy way before they would gather around the Lord's for the Lord's Supper, and they were treating each other ill and all those things. We've preached on that. Howard Dean, Dean has preached on it. But again, brethren, the idea here is ownership, that God owns the day. He owns the table. He owns the church. And more than that, well, not more than that, but plus that, you notice in our text that the third thing they did was they gathered on the Lord's Day around the Lord's table to hear God's words. That's exactly what they did. And brethren, again, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but again, we cannot shut the Bible. We cannot walk away from its principles. We cannot walk away from its practices and just come up with whatever we want to do. In fact, turn with me to John for a moment. John chapter 8. I want you to see this again, brethren. Again, ownership. John chapter 8. Look there if you would. Now, there's many places. There's just some that I've that I've picked out here just to give us good practice, to give us good understanding, to help us understand, brethren, that our fellowshipping together, our gathering together, is not a flippant thing anywhere, any way, anyhow, except maybe in men's mind, but certainly not scripturally. Look here at verses four, verse number 43. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture. John chapter 8, listen to what Jesus says. Why do you not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? <laughs> That's very important there. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. So, you know, Jesus is exposing the enemy for his character, and for who he is, and how he speaks. I mean, this is just what he's made of. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. He is a liar and a father of it. Verse 45, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? <laughs> There's just a whole lot of theology here in this next verse. He that is of God heareth what? God's words. Do you see that there? Now, I want you to take note. There's an apostrophe there. In other words, the Bible, the very words of God, are owned by God. Now, brethren, you think I'm, I'm on some kind of a kick this morning. I kind of am. Because it draws it out. Because, brethren, again, we look at the importance of Scripture and what it says. So, brethren, let me just, if I can, give us a quick summation of what Paul and what Luke is recording in that little church in Troas, which very little is known about. What he's saying is, brethren, as they gathered on the Lord's day, they gathered around the Lord's table to hear the words of God spoken. All possessed, all owned, all completely gathered under one, he who is in, from eternity, he who inhabits eternity, God. God's the owner, brethren. He's the one. We must always remember that. It is, again, as I said, this little church, this little gathering where very little is known, is used by God to engrave 
these holy practices that have been going on and will continue to go on until he comes again. Isn't that glorious, brethren? Just one little text, one little church. Sometimes we gather right, just gaze right over the top of it and really don't see what God is doing as he's engraving these important holy practices even now today into you and into I. Now, as we turn to my favorite portion of this text, which there's, you know, preachers that want to preach a long time like this text. There's been a lot of kind of jokes, people laugh, you know, when, uh, when this text is brought up. I've been accused of this. I don't know why, but I have been. But uh, you'll see, brethren, I don't think anybody, <laughs> I don't think anybody can ever remember me preaching for six plus hours straight. Now, I go for an hour and a half, two hours sometimes on the Lord's Day morning. Here, Paul preaches at a minimum, brother, of six hours straight. It's a stunning thing. Let's look at that together because, again, as a preacher, this is one of our favorite verses we like to turn to. There's a, <laughs> you know, brothers, we're talking about holy practice. <laughs> Shall we implement this holy? Oh, Harrison's over there. Oh, oh, here we go. Look at Acts chapter 20. Look there, if you would, as we again just glean some glorious truths from this text. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10 as we put them together. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was what? Long in preaching. Oh, that's a glorious little conjunction there, long in preaching. He sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Now, brethren, there really is a whole lot of things that's going on here. Luke tells us that Paul was indeed long in preaching because he's going to depart. He's getting ready to leave the next day. So he preached, as I said, for a minimum, a minimum of six hours. And I want you to see this. Look there at verse number seven, again, just by way of remembrance. As we take and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, uh, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until when? Midnight. So in our text, we're at midnight. <laughs> Brothers, we could just go on. and We could turn this into a real Puritan kind of thing today. He started, and again, church, as they gathered together many times early on in the church, they didn't gather in the morning like we do. This started later in the day. But at a minimum, Paul has been preaching here until midnight. Now look down at verse number 11. This gives us at least the minimum of six hours that he's preaching to them. Look at verse, if you will, verse 11. So he starts, even if we take it just from midnight, but he's been preaching longer than that. Look at verse number 11. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day. So even if you take it from midnight in verse number 7 until the break of day in verse number 11, that's at least six hours. <laughs> now, brothers, we could use some of that I, in all seriousness. Wouldn't it be good? Shouldn't we sometime just have a, a slew of preachers, good sound men? We gather together and we just have some men preach. Just sit and listen to the Word of God and hear the Word of God. And then when it's all done, eight, nine hours later, we gather around the Lord's table together. We celebrate. We proclaim His death 
till he come again. Wouldn't that be something? Howard was talking this morning in Bible study about a revival that's needed. Brethren, you realize we, te- we talk about revival. Just practically thinking this through. We, we talk about revival all the time. Howard brought up a great point this morning in our Bible study. Do you realize, brethren, where the revival starts? You know what we like to do? We want to look out there. Oh, God, send a revival in Congress. God, send a revival you know, in my business, in my job. You know what the Bible says? You know where revival starts? Do you understand where it starts? Right here. It starts in the church. It starts with God's people. It has to, to hang on and to preach sound words, to preach the gospel to those who are lost. That's where revival has to come. It has to come within our own hearts, brethren. Those of us who already believe. Those of us who already are, are, if you will, filled with holy practices. Doing these things that is so clearly laid out over and over again in Scripture. So, brethren, for at least six hours, Paul is preaching. <laughs> and then we see what happens to poor Eutychus here, don't we? We were talking about this last night. He falls three stories to his death. Now, brethren, there is clearly a combination of things. In fact, if you look there at verse number 8, and there were many lights in the upper chamber. <laughs> now, brothers, if we were back in the day when this was actually taking place, you know what we wouldn't have? We wouldn't have these lights. You know what we'd have? Many lanterns burning. Many. In fact, and I'm not trying to pick on the Catholics, but have you ever been to one of those Catholic masses at midnight? I mean, there's so much smoke you choke out. I mean, it chokes you out. This is what's happening. There, there, is, there is lamps burning everywhere. There's all kinds of noxious, gaseous things going on within the place. Which is contributing, of course. Not that Eutychus isn't mindful of Paul's preaching. But you breathe in a few of those fumes and that will certainly add to the deliriousness. Along with the long preaching, Eutychus goes to sleep and falls out. (laughs) He doesn't fall inside, he falls out the window. Goes down three stories. And it is quite an amazing thing again as God is laying this out. Verses 9 and 10, look there at our text. There's lights burning. And there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell from the third loft and was taken up dead. Verse 10, again, this is all being ordained by God for this purpose. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Now it's interesting, again, brethren, you read... Some of the commentaries on this, it is most unholy. Well, he really wasn't sleeping. He really wasn't dead. He just, you know, he was knocked out. So, you know, Paul just went down there and got on top of him, right? Meanwhile, earlier in the text, it tells us what, that he died. So let's just take the Bible for what it says, amen? Let's just, hey, when the Bible tells us that they went across the Red Sea on what? Dry ground. Let's just... Let's take the Bible for what it says, that they went across on dry ground. When the Bible says here that Eutychus fell out of the window and that he died and that Paul went down and raised him from the dead, that's what he did. 
There's no swooning. You guys know it's taught of Christ, all of these unholy things concerning his resurrection. That's why I said this morning is bodily resurrection, because, well, there's many out there, they think something cool happened. They're not really sure what it is during the resurrection, but there's some who believe he was just swooning. He wasn't dead. He was just kind of in a stupor, in a conscious stupor. Well, brother, that's stupid. Can I just say that? The stupor goes along with how stupid you can be. Amen. You just have to believe and trust the word of God. Amen. This is where we're at, brethren. As soon as you start doubting, like many have done nowadays, as soon as you start doubting the front end, can I just say this? Whether or not, you know, you got preachers saying now, well, it doesn't matter how Jesus got here. It doesn't matter if he was born of a virgin or how he got here. What matters is the end. No, actually, the beginning and the end both matter. They both are as important. They tie one to another. Amen. When Isaiah said that he's going to be born of a virgin, then he was born of a virgin. That's important how he got here because it goes to the integrity of God, to the integrity of his word, to the integrity of inspiration, to the integrity of God's truthfulness. Same here. Eutychus fell out of the window and he's dead. Paul went down, of course, and raised him. Now this miracle, and this is again, brother, why we're such sticklers. Does this miracle remind us of anything that may have taken place in the Old Testament? If it was Wednesday night, I know you guys would be blurting it out, wouldn't you? One of the Old Testament prophets' name was Elijah. The other one was Elisha. Yeah, this has happened before. You realize this. Again, this is why it's important that the Word of God is kept together, that as we teach, as we understand it, as we believe it, brethren, in what? the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture. Because this, the narrative in the Old Testament concerning Elijah, which we're going to look at, is just as holy and just as truthful as the one we're reading here. So let us just turn there for a moment as we... What do I got? Three pages left? We're all... No, I'm just kidding. But I want you to see this. Look, look at First Kings chapter 17. This, again, is something that is so amazing to me. And I'm always amazed at how little people are amazed at the continuity of God's word and how he has, again, proven himself over and over again. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17. Again, a very familiar portion of scripture to us. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. What does that mean, brother? Yeah, he's not swooning. He died, okay? That's what happened. And you look there if we continue on. Well, she questions Elijah. Look down at verse number 20 just for the sake of time. And he cried unto the Lord, Elijah, and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times. There's a lot of theology here, brother. And I mean, this, you know, <laughs> the death battle. There's so many things that are tied in here. But he does what Paul did. He stretches himself upon the boy, just exactly like Paul did, and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let thee this child's soul's come, soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. Now listen. Again, brethren, God's purposes 
his, his means and his ends. Why did he allow Eutychus to fall out? Why did he let Paul go down and raise him from the dead? For this very reason. Look at verse 24. Why did Elijah do it? Why did Elisha do it? Well, so they could stand up on a stage and call glitter down out of, the, out of the screens and all this kind of stuff? No. Listen. The Bible isn't together yet, brethren. The New Testament isn't together yet as this is taking place. But look at verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know. What does he know? I know that thou art a man of God. Listen, and more importantly, and that the word of the Lord is in thy what? It's in thy mouth. This great miracle that all of us believe, I pray you believe it, was again for a purpose, for God's glorious purposes, for his glorious ends, that when the man of God is preaching the word of God, they will know that he is the man of God and that what he says is true. That God's word is confirmed. Again, over and over again, this is why we look at these apostolic miracles. You will remember, brethren, as we bring this thing to a close, you will remember that as Paul goes on from here, there's a few miracles that take place, but they begin to wane. I mean, Timothy. I mean, think of, think of this, brethren, for a moment. What did Paul tell him to do uh, towards the end? Take a, little, take a little wine for thy stomach. Take a little medicine for thy stomach. Why didn't Paul just roll over there and cast a shadow and do all these things and heal him? Because God was bringing those things to a close, those apostolic miracles to a close. As the word of God is being penned, as it's being put together, this, brethren, is what we trust. This is what we believe in. This is why we look at it and go, could God do that? Yes, I'm not saying he can't. But brethren, as I always say, it's not the biblical norm. <laughs> I can tell you that. And I'll say it again. These charlatans who claim this stuff, raising people from the dead, you realize this, take this to the bank. Take it to the bank. Not once, not one time, not once. Can I say it again? Not once. Has it ever been filmed? Has it ever been caught live? None of it. It's a farce, brethren. This was live. People saw what God did. And it was indeed, again, to confirm who? To confirm Paul, who was indeed God's preacher, who was preaching what? His word. That's the purpose. That's the glory that goes right to God. It goes directly to him, not to Paul or to anyone else. In reversing, in the reversing of death. Now think of this, brother. And I, I wrote that down, and I had to think about it for a moment. Because of my old age now, and I keep telling I have to be careful with my kids. You know, I start thinking about my own end. When you get older, when you get to be old like me, you start thinking about your own end. You, because you're closer to the end than you are to the beginning, right? I mean, it's just the reality of life. But think of this for a moment. If one would die, and then to have that death reversed... That, that, think of that for a moment. In the reversing of his death, these deaths that we've read about in Scripture, it's stunning to consider it in that way, in that, if you will, we're used to people dying. We're not used to people coming back. <laughs> we're, we're used to them going in the coffin. We're used to them putting them in the ground. And someday, if we're Christians and we're together, we will see them again. But this is reversed. I mean, it's just, think of that for a moment. It boggles my mind. It really does. But in the reversing of death, that only Christ can give the power to do and had the power to do. The prophets of Israel, his peer, the apostle Peter, because Peter did it too, and Paul here, are indeed confirmed to be the true spokesman for God, 
who bring the words of God as he intended them to come. And brethren, that's important, isn't it? Especially when you see how men con continually pick the word of God and misuse the word of God over and over again. Let us close here, brethren, with verse number 12, Acts chapter 20. Look at verse number 12. Let us close together with that. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. Now, brethren, that is, those are comforting words. Amen. You think about the meeting, the long hours of preaching, God working this miracle to, to again, affirm Paul as his preacher. How is that practical for us today then? How can we look at this and practically use this and practice this? Let me ask you, what is the distinctives of this church in Troas? Well, number one was their giving. We didn't spend much time there, but they too were a church that gave. We ask ourselves, brethren, are we giving? Is that a holy practice that we participate in? That's something we have to consider, brethren, amen, as a, as a practical thing in our own lives. Are we, like they, practicing giving? Are we regularly meeting on the Lord's day? That's something we have to ask ourselves. Are we putting the Lord's day above family and above everything else? Now, in the Western culture, that's hard to hear. But there's a reality, brethren, Again, that, and I know, listen, let me just preface this by saying this. There are providential hindrances. I almost started crying when I saw you guys come in. I got emotional. Because we know what's been happening. There are providential hindrances. That happens. But if it's not a providential hindrance, you can't put your family above the Lord's day, the Lord's table, and the Lord's words can't do it you cannot that's why last Sunday I'm not trying to be critical you'd believe it or not brethren we met here on the Lord's Day on Christmas Day and you know what we did after that we went and met with our family after that you know why because family does not come above the Lord's Day the Lord's Church or anything else. And again, providential hindrances, I, I get that. But I really pray that the Spirit of God will instill in our own hearts and minds the importance of this little church at Troas and the holy practices that were laid out there. And let me just close with this. Are we breaking open God's Word? Are we participating in are we reading God's word are we hearing God's word are we listening to the preachers the good ones I might add there's many bad ones but if you have a good preacher that you like are you listening to him are you hearing him preach the word of God are you participating in the Lord's Supper are we practicing these holy things brethren this is what God demands this is what he demands he demands it and he commands it because why? Because they are his. The day, the table, and the church all belong to him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we...